RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Wednesday morning at RCR is Legal Hub morning, and Katie Ashby Coppins joins me again to chew on some of the legal issues. Katie, welcome back. Thank you so much, Paul, and good morning, everybody. Okay, um, some items to get through. Let's start with this one. New WHO chief scientist. Who is this person? Well, it's a very good question. Uh, his name is um, Jeremy Farrar, and he is, uh, I guess, the new person that uh, we will be uh, ha- have our scientific positions led by, uh, and he's uh, now with the uh, World Health Organization. Uh, what has been interesting is about three months ago, I think he joined um, the World Health Organization. Um, but he's also just had his first interview, which was a very interesting uh, interview. Um, so I thought I'd just take a few bits and pieces through because it will feed in quite nicely to our last subject, which we're going to talk about today, which is an update on the uh, WHO and UN pandemic treaties. Okay, so what nationality is this chap? Oh, you do ask the good questions. Uh, I'm going to say American. Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't have that at my fingers, fingertips. He's he's been around before. I think he's um, uh, certainly got a background and been involved uh, in uh, wellness. Oh no, he's English. Uh, he was involved in the wellness group, I think, and was the head of that organisation for about ten years. Uh, and he's has he he's certainly popped up uh, quite a few times before when I was having a look at his background. Um, but you know he's he's the guy that's here. He's he's got the new um, appointment, and he's uh, singing to the same tune of you know lots of those words and concepts that we see um, coming about. You know, equality. You know, the world all working together. Um, yeah, one health. Well, so that doesn't have much to do with the scientific method, though, does it? Is that what he's there for? Well, chief you scientist, would... you'd think, yeah. You would certainly expect him to. Um, he's clearly got an advisory role as the chief scientist and will be informing the director general and no doubt the executive uh, committee of the WHO, which I think is about 32 um, uh, committee members strong. Uh, Does that so, include our Ashley? No, uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think Ashley is just the uh, okay. world – sorry, he is just the co-chair of the – uh, international working group for the who pen, sorry for this um, for the international health regulation amendments. Okay, uh, I don't understand uh, uh, Dr. Bloomfield to have a position on the committee of the who. They'll know each other though. Of course they will. Oh, of all course. Right. I, think, I think Geneva as well. Um, you know, all the footsteps of Geneva are well um, trod with. Uh, yeah. public servants and bureaucrats of this nature. And um, you said interview. Was that a some kind of public interview or video interview or what sort of interview was that? Uh, it was an interview which uh, to me seemed to only be um, recorded in writing. I haven't seen it portrayed live. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's just him having the opportunity to have a few uh, comments and to mention a few bits and pieces that he's keen to really progress as the now new chief scientist of the uh, World Health Organization. So he said all the right things, did he, in in what you read there, all the buzzwords, all the key words? 
look, he absolutely has. And I think that these that, that we need to keep these things in mind, that these things are really important. So he said um, a couple of things of interest. Um, we need to not wait for the next crisis. The next pandemic's just around the corner. How come they all know the next pandemic's around the corner? How does it? <laughs> how do they know that? You've got to wonder. Um, he says that we shouldn't neglect the known pathogens for the sexy unknown ones. Uh, That's a weird way of putting it. Yeah, and look, quote marks. So he's definitely said it. That's um, that's, that's that's a bit off, isn't it? Yeah. Look, I mean, he, he's he's another. Uh, person that's a representative of a very big organisation that's going for a very large power grab. So, you know, he needs to be saying all the right things. Well, how can a pathogen be sexy at any time? Look, I'm not sure that it ever is, but perhaps when you're a chief health scientist um, or the new chief scientist, perhaps they do get sexy. Oh, gosh, in in their dreams. All right, sorry to jump in there, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) couldn't help. It it amused me. It's highlighted. It's definitely highlighted. Um, so he says the WHO has a research and development roadmap fully in place for Ebola, um, Marburg, tick-borne Crimean, Congo, uh, hemorrhagic fever, um, Zika, Rift Valley fever, and pathogen X, uh, which I'm not sure is an unknown pathogen or just one that they haven't named yet. Okay, so it sounds like he's um, sort of um... – lining up the possibilities for the next one and naming look, I, them like that. Look, they all are. Um, and, you know, uh, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the next pandemic just being around the corner. And it suits uh, them for the speed at which they're operating at getting the documents done uh, and the breadth and, um, uh, well, really the breadth of the uh, power changes and the power they'll have over member states. So we can see that certainly starting to come through the language. The language is the same, all the same script. Um, you know, it, it's just a case of when. Um, so, yeah, from a legal point of view and how it could affect um, us, he would be in the loop for declaring a pandemic, wouldn't he? He would. He would, um, especially with the new um, uh, with the new. Uh, international health regulation amendments that we're seeing. Uh, they're called the 307 amendments at this stage. They're currently in uh, negotiation. I think they're up to the sixth uh, meeting uh, for those. That's the working group that uh, Dr. Bloomfield's involved with, with the other co-chair from uh, Saudi Arabia. And, uh, you know, we, we're seeing a lot of the same com- uh, same wording and the same flavour, and it's certainly flowing through. I wonder if he thinks lockdowns are sexy. Oh, look, (laughs) I'm sure there'll be that. But the key point there is is that it doesn't even have to be a pandemic, Paul. It can be a potential pandemic, and it doesn't even need to be a pandemic. It could be just something that impacts health. And so there is a potential to see the incursion of uh, uh, measures being put in under the guise of environmental concerns. So what do you think would happen here? I know you can't say for sure, but let's kind of just map this out. So let's say a in the next near time, this new pathogen, because they're always saying there will be another one, comes on the scene. Can you see us, us being the collective us, kind of responding in the way that the WHO would expect us to respond, carrying out their orders, sort of like, um, in a way, what happened you know, in the last 
short amount of time. Can you see that happening again here? Look, that's a really good question, Paul, and uh, I don't know. I think you'll st- I think perhaps maybe things might have flipped side slightly, whereas before we'll have the you know uh, the twenty or thirty percent that were asking questions saying something doesn't seem quite right here, with what we've experienced over the last three years, and this is all of us worldwide. Uh, I think we might be looking more at the thirty percent will be the compliant ones, and the sixty percent will be the ones that are you know asking questions, and then we'll have the unknown ten percent. But look, people still really like being told what to do as long as they get to the pub on the Friday night um, and can keep living their life. Um, get to the hairdresser. Um, you know that's that's the things that they want to be able to keep uh, keep doing. So, but yes, I think people are certainly a lot wiser to. Um, to what's going on. What I did find interesting is as the chief, um, new chief scientist is that he just talks um, loosely and hypothesis on, on COVID's origins, including um, a possible accidental lab leak um, from the, uh, the Institute of Virology, which is one of the only three sites um, where such virological analysis happens in the world. And yet, and well, coincidentally, they were working particularly on bat coronaviruses at this lab, um, yeah. and in a very close geography to where patient zero allegedly was. Um, and yet, you know, as a scientist, there's always this desire to question and unearth and find out. Uh, but you know, we, we've talked about it before. There's been a real hesitant um, hesitation, or not even wanting to unearth or uncover uh, the um, you know exact uh, yeah. Place from which from which this uh, from which this um, virus originated, with incredible so, circumstantial evidence pointing to or favouring one particular theory. Let's say, well, in that case, you can't call yourself a scientist if you ignore no. or don't carry out the scientific method in your thinking and the way you express what you're thinking and saying. Then you can't call yourself a scientist, can you? No, and look, I mean, there's been a lot to do with the uh, the the ver- the um, Genesis of the virus, reviewing the virus, considering how it could have come together um, in the way that it had. And, you know, a scientist would look at that um, matter of fact. Um, but again, you know, this all of the science over the last few years has been very politically um, manipulated. He wouldn't have got the job, though, if he questioned that. Goodness gracious, no. No, so, you know, and I'm sure it's very well paid. Anything more to say about the new WHO chief scientist before we move on to Ivermectin. No, that's all for him. We will no doubt circle back because I'm sure he will feature again. Yep. Okay. Recent wins for Ivermectin in US and Malaysia. Just to remind people, you probably know it, there were people here ridiculing anyone who thought there was something in that, um, equating it with, you know, some sort of horse uh, medication. Turns out we all knew that anyway, that it, um, was a therapeutic treatment for people suffering from terrible COVID symptoms. And it was, uh, was it actually banned here, Katie, or was just not allowed to be used for Look, there was guidelines. There was guidelines. And I think it went so far as to be a recommendation uh, from the Medical Council. But in New Zealand, from what I recall, it was something from the general, um, uh, uh, the general practice, the Royal College of General Practitioners and the Medical Council. It was never outlawed in New Zealand, but there was certainly um, uh, advice or guidelines that were issued uh, around its being used. And, you know, just as 
um, recently as a couple of weeks ago, someone I know went to their GP in, in New Zealand and said, look, I've got this rash. I've had it since COVID. I've been to the doctors. I've been to the hospital. No one can tell me what it is. Um, I found something about it online. It looks the same. They treated it with ivermectin and they refused um, to uh, offer her a prescription on on that basis because uh, they said that they do not uh, use ivermectin uh, in respect of anything to do with COVID. And so we're still seeing it follow through and still being um, uh, complied with uh, or, 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 you know, those guidelines being uh, followed by general practitioners. So it's still permeating. Um, the pressure is still permeating within the practices and within the, you know, doctor um, patient uh, relationship. Yeah, okay, we'll get on to the US and Malaysia in just a moment. But do you think any doctor actually believes that? They can't be that unaware. So what they're doing is they're holding off treating their patients with something that they know will help them, but they're denying that treatment and they know that they are wrong. How, how, <laughs> in what clown world does that happen? Look, I, I don't know. I, I can't tell you the individual of an individual um, um, GP, but I do have to say um, that they must be seeing some things that make them question uh, the directors, the protocols and the narratives. Because it's not based on any any facts at all, is it? No, um, and, and it's it's out of the ordinary as well. You haven't seen a situation before where a product that was readily available um, and used by uh, many and millions around the world uh, almost on a daily basis for a raft of different conditions um, have been told that they can't use it. Not uh, only that, treat. it would have it has forced people into taking another form of medication which has damaged them. That could have mm. been avoided big time. So this is a terrible scandal, of course. So what's happened in the United States? Well, in the United States, and we're seeing this at the initial phases, there's strong recommendations by the FDA and by the medical councils over there saying, you know, can't issue this. We've got a massive um, newspaper campaign that comes out um, against uh, Joe Rogan for taking horse tranquilizer and things, and it was a very concerted uh, effort. But then we see a situation where you know start pushing back a little bit, and we start seeing some different or quite different results. So um, we had a situation uh, in uh, the states: three doctors, um, Mary Bowden, Paul Merrick, and uh, Robert Apter. Uh, took a landmark case against the FDA, the doctors themselves, and they took it to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And uh, that was, I think, back in July, and they've just actually had a decision issued this week, which uh, is that the uh, that was a finding that the US Food and Drug Administration likely overstepped its authority when it told Americans to stop using ivermectin against COVID. Uh, the FDA can inform, but it cannot... I, I, but it has not identified no authority allowing it to recommend consumers stop taking the medicine. And the US circuit judge, uh, Don Willett, wrote the ruling. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think it's a fantastic case. And, and we're seeing it starting to happen around the world. We saw it happen in Australia a month and a half ago. Uh, and now we've also had a similar decision happen in Malaysia. And the reason why I want to talk about Malaysia is that it's also a Commonwealth country with a Westminster system like New Zealand. Right. Okay. Well, okay. Well, add to that. Yeah. Okay. So, again, another landmark case. Um, this is a Malaysian appellate court. It was actually an appeal from a previous um, 
uh, hearing uh, and it uh, is landmark because the appellate court um, judge confirmed that qualified doctors in Malaysia are no longer shackled by wrongful interference as occurred during the COVID crisis over the past three years, uh, but are now free to practice medicine as fully as benefits their profession and their expertise. So wow. <laughs> two questions that were um, asked of the appellate court was whether a registered medical practitioner is entitled to suspense ivermectin as an ingredient to his or her patient under the Poisons Act 1952, read together with the Poisons Regulations 1952. And the second question was whether a registered medical practitioner can dispense ivermectin to his or her patients for the purposes of the medical treatment of such patient only in, in compliance with Section 19 of the Poisons Act 1952 and the Poisons Regulations 1952. And in both situations, or to both questions, the appellate court ruling was yes. Okay. So so drawing the – well, pointing out that it's a Commonwealth country with a parliamentary system, um, does that give any lead or any connection to what we might do in relation to this issue here? Yeah, and so we were talking last week about where laws come from and how they're made, and one of the things is, is that we have case law, which um, helps inform us on how to interpret uh, statutory law, but we can also pull on, rely on other countries, and we generally do follow or apply laws from other countries that you know have similar laws to ours, or um, have or are based on the Westminster system, which is uh, you know where our laws as a Commonwealth country uh, come from. So you know this is encouraging. We're seeing it in Australia. We're seeing it in Malaysia. The states has a very different um, system, and we generally don't apply um, American case law to New Zealand. Uh, but, you know, Canada, we certainly do. And, of course, uh, we get a lot of our case law from England where uh, our, uh, our, our law uh, essentially originated. So a similar case could be taken here? Uh, yes, a similar case could be taken in New Zealand to question the uh, directives and or guidelines that were issued by the Royal College of um, GPs and also the Medical Council. Uh, and I think when we were talking with Alison uh, Goodwin the yep. other day, we were talking about the fact that you know that there wasn't there was quite a confused way that the medical council went around saying that these products couldn't be used uh, to treat people with COVID, whereas in Australia we actually saw a certification um, or a classification of that drug um, into a category that meant that um, uh, it couldn't be. Uh, uh, use because it was classified on the poison schedule. Okay, so we did it differently from Australia. They went uh, full Monty with theirs. So here it was sort of like skirting around the edges, kind of not going to the level of of putting it on, what is it, the poisons register or something. Correct. Yeah, exactly right. Not classifying it. Not They had, might have had a couple of options. They could have classified it as a drug, um, such as an illicit drug, uh, but in New Zealand, uh, they've had a slightly different uh, approach with um, guidelines and uh, oh, I can't remember. I think it was, I think it was just guidelines they issued and uh, a press release. But it became uh, so known amongst doctors because remember, Alison saying, and I could be wrong, faulty memory, but um, there was the fear. Uh, doctors had the fear that they would 
have the medical council coming at them if they were prescribing right. or endorsing or using in any way ivermectin. So that was kind of the unwritten rule. They've still got the fear, but the thing was is those those guidelines were the ones that were issued, but then it wasn't the guidelines that were putting the fear into people. It was that the medical council were actively going after yeah. those doctors that were prescribing it um, and I, I think are still persecuting them now. Uh, you're, and we're seeing... Which is really first- odd because of what we know now about ivermectin. It seems in Australia, though, because they... It was done, well, at a legal level, there was a change of classification. If you could prove that X amount of people died because they couldn't get that because there was no other treatment available, um, is there any legal, because that's in the end what this means. So is there any accountability that way? Here, I would imagine, and I'm dumb, I don't know about these things too much, but because they never sort of wrote anything down or, or entrenched it, you can kind of, there's wiggle room there to say, well, you know, it was like Chris, Christopher Hipkins saying that you weren't forced to take it when when you were actually, um, you know, yeah. because in the end there has to be some again justice right in this legal system. Yeah, and look, there there absolutely does. So there was a challenge in Australia to the um, classification, and what I touched on earlier in, in today's show was. You, know, you sort of see this pushback once you get outside of these regulator council levels. You see a pushback at the district court level or the court level, and uh, you see a reversing of the decisions that were made at those low regulatory um, law unto their own levels. And you actually see that the laws are changed as a consequence of these pushbacks. And we're starting to see that. The problem with the law is, is it does work quite slowly. The wheels yeah. of justice roll slowly. In yep. Australia, yes, um, the class action might, uh, because we can have personal injury in Australia, um, the class action there might allege that those tens of thousands of people that passed away because they weren't able to get treatment um, from COVID, um, you know, there might be an argument there that ivermectin might have saved them. You've got to show causation, so you've got to have more than just um uh, a mere suggestion you've got to show be able to show a causative link and to show that someone died because they didn't have something is going to be probably something quite hard to prove uh, from a legal perspective well they seem to be able to say that they died of covid quite regularly yeah, absolutely <laughs> even if they were shot on a driveway you know or yeah and i think that 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 new zealand case is cited around the world that the guy was who was shot um uh, died of covid but not the bullet wound yeah, um, yeah, and look, you know, the questioning that um, uh, Mr. Uh, Hipkins had the other day, where he said it wasn't forced, he was essentially just parroting what um, the Pfizer representative said at a Senate inquiry uh, in Australia, and um, it was quite good. I had the chance to be involved in uh, drafting some of those questions that were put by the senators to those, oh, wow. okay. um, to those uh, Pfizer representatives, and again, it's all semantics. They are saying they weren't forced. They are using the definition of forced in their mind to justify the answer in that no one was held down and jabbed. Um, and so, you know, it, it's a semantics game. One of the options might have been, well, could you please tell me what your definition of forced is? And then we can start talking about forced. But that's, you know, the narrative that they were able to keep parroting back with their script that they were given. Don't go outside. This. No one's buying it. No one's buying no it. No one's buying it. And this is what's You'll find that out. You'll find that out. And it's undermining, you know, it's going to undermine them. It's undermined it's undermined the media by not them not doing their jobs. You know, they're going broke. 
Um, it's un- going to undermine the politicians that are all trying to stand up there with a straight face and you know deliver this nonsense that people are seeing through. Hmm. The pendulum is swinging too far towards nutty. Okay, before we get on to UN and WHO pandemic treaties, and we've talked about that a bit over the time already, UN's Correct. new draft of misinformation declarations. Okay, I'm interested to hear about this. Is yeah. this a tighter definition of what misinformation is? No, look, it's an opportunity to reply. We started seeing the misinformation being encapsulated into the documents, and it probably is a good lead on to the uh, UN and WHO pandemic treaties that are being drafted. But we're seeing in there a lot of reference to control of the infodemic, um, mis and disinformation. And, you know, now we're starting to see the codes be drafted. And in this instance, it's a code coming out from the UN um, I believe the UN might have also included a section on this in their um, Pandemic Response Manifesto Zero Draft, which they're discussing on the 22nd of um, September at the UN high-level meeting. Um, you know, this is coming for us. But one of the really interesting things is is we've got these group people called um, the UN, uh, the Rapporteurs, and I think you actually might have interviewed one of the Rapporteurs. Yes, I did, a woman. I can't remember her name, but yes, I remember. I think yeah. she's an Egyptian woman, actually. Yes, she is. And so um, I, I'm hoping to get on for um, uh, RCR shortly, one that did some amazing reports around free speech. Uh, and her comments were um, very telling, and I'll um, I touch on them again probably on another session, but the comments and um, about the free speech or those that are looking to the freedoms of um, uh, speech, uh, those rapporteurs are actually making some pretty significant comments about who is the um, purveyors of the mis- and disinformation. Okay. And lo and behold, we've got the same, the purveyors of the mis- and disinformation, also the ones that are making it illegal for anyone else to do it. So, again, this is the kinds of things. So we've got an opportunity to provide submissions to the UN, uh, and uh, that's an opportunity we'll have, I think, until the 1st of December. Uh, so that will be uh, one that I encourage everyone to get behind, and I'll make sure that there's something up on Uh, our website uh, for it so people can have a look and see what commentary we might be sending back uh, or what they might wish to send back or make comment on uh, because having a say is so incredibly important. Yeah. um, Of course, people are going to think, well, will it make any difference? But I guess you've just got to try. Look, um, and, you know, that's that's all well and good. Um, That can be the view of many. There is uh, often something to be said for the public record uh, and for, you know, feeling like you've done something because otherwise the world can feel like it's closing in. Uh, yeah, but yeah. it's also the opportunity to have your say and just to show how many people are, are against or for um, what is being proposed. Not many for, I don't think. No, no but we've got to give a balanced view, don't we? Oh, yeah, yeah, but I'm picking not many for. Not many for, no, I can't imagine either. Okay, imagine being out there. We want more. Yeah, less we want free more. <laughs> speech because more or less free speech because of the oh gosh. Okay, so as I say, we've talked uh, quite a bit over the time regarding UN and WHO pandemic treaties. That's the yeah. um, the uh, regulations and the treaty is the what thing that ends up controlling your travel and QR codes and all of that, isn't it? There's two different kind things. of. Yeah, look, there's quite a few different things. So um, I've actually done a whole page of this on um, the Voices for Freedom website, and it's all to do with this because there's a lot of 
um, dare I say it, misinformation. No, there's a lot of confusion around it because it's so convoluted. Um, yep. It took me an eon to get across it. And as a consequence of um, getting across it and appearing before the Office of Global Affairs in the States, that's how I got pulled into the um, Australian group and got to go to um, uh, Canberra not long ago, which is why I missed one of our radio. Um, All right. What, yep. what, yep. One of our radio shows. But it was an amazing opportunity to get to present, to let people um, in Parliament actually know what is what's going on because quite often we get this answer back was no no sovereignty will be lost there's no way that we can change our domestic laws um, you know it's you know the, the who will not be able to have a say over what we are able to do but that's actually quite disingenuous because when you sign up to an international treaty future laws or um, that you create or any amendments to laws um, have to be done with reference to uh, the international treaties that you've signed up to. So just saying that, you know, no, you won't um, have to um, uh, apply the WHO pandemic treaties, um, it's quite incorrect because if you do acquiesce to them or, sorry, acquiesce to them or tacitly accept them, um, then you'll actually have to put the requirements in place. And there's some very strict rules in the pandemic treaty documents that require that. So um, it's it's quite untrue to be saying, oh, well, you know, we can sign up to it, but we don't need to change our laws. Uh, the geopolitical issues around that, the sanctions, uh, you know, they're very real political considerations. Uh, and, you know, it will also fly in the face of what, um, you know, what you've agreed to by effectively not rejecting these documents. So what would happen if, if we or if any nation state, but let's say us, New Zealand, bailed out of that altogether. Would that mean that uh, New Zealand citizens would be compromised travelling or anywhere being anywhere in the world? Would there be consequences? Yeah, look, there could be consequences. Um, there, the, the, the issue I can see with the um, vaccine passports that are going to be required is not necessarily driven by so much as the, of the WHO, but certainly requirements from the member states implementing rules from the WHO. Um, and that's under the international health regulations that are currently being uh, worked on at the moment, the 307 amendments. Um, that, that, that we'll see if countries don't comply Countries like New Zealand, for example, New Zealand, uh, not necessarily being able to travel to other countries that do require those passes. Uh, you know that, that that could be that could be real. Um, another thing might be is if New Zealand uh, fails to meet the heavy cost burden or the financial contributions that are going to be required under these um, documents. Uh, then New Zealand might be frozen out in other ways uh, for failing to to do that. Oh, gosh. <laughs> We'd be naughty, wouldn't we? Naughty, naughty country if we did that. Look, and absolutely could. Uh, the effect of rejecting them, I don't know whether or not that you know bans you from uh, the WHO uh, forever or means that you can't be a member state. Uh, you know, rejection doesn't seem to lead in any of the rules that I've seen to a, um, you know, a cancellation of your membership, but I can't imagine it makes it particularly comfortable, especially when everyone's sharing um, pathogens uh, to one centralised location in Europe and you haven't jumped on the bandwagon and aren't doing, um, New Zealand's not doing multiple testing of sewerage and then ensuring that any pathogens it discovers gets shipped off to that same centralised location. You know, there's, there's some real 
real questions um, as to what these documents, um, the effect of them, uh, given that the, they're very heavily worded in favour of empowering the WHO. Yeah, so if they empower the WHO to the level that we worry, we wouldn't really have any other choice but to, even if it's tough, to bail out, because how could we be part of that? Yeah, and that, that, that's a really good question, because... Um, at this point in time, who's not a member of the WHO? There's 164 member states, um, and uh, I think 162 of them are countries, and then uh, other than other others of them are things like uh, 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 in Rome, uh, the with Catholics are. Oh yeah, like. Uh- yeah, well, it's a not city a country. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a city state. Exactly right. So th- that makes up the others. There's a lot of people that aren't there, and then you know you're going to have a real impact with trade um, and future trade agreements because you know we've now got all these free trade agreements. Are our trade agreements then impacted because we haven't signed up to the WHO? Uh, the pressure could be the pressure could be, you know, well, we might it might be a real moment of pressure coming for us at some point where. Yeah, and so I think it's really big call, big call. Exactly right. So I think it's really important to talk about the timing and talk about the documents. So we've got four pandemic treaties currently being discussed. Uh, There's the UN's political declaration on pandemic preparedness and response. It's a zero draft manifesto, and it's being discussed on the 20th of September 2023 at the UN high level meeting. That document then essentially marionettes off it. Uh, the amendments to the 2005 International Health Regulations, uh, which have been split into two, and I'll revert to those in a minute, and then also this WHO pandemic uh, CA plus or this pandemic treaty. So the amendments to the International Health Regulations have been split into two, as I just mentioned. One section has been adopted already, and that's the ones that amend the timeframes to reject any future amendments to, uh, I think it's 10 months from 18 months, and to reject the um, the uh, implementation of any future ones that you haven't rejected from 24 to 12 months. So we're seeing a really shortening of a time frame. Um, in the UN uh, manifesto that I just mentioned, the first document, it actually says that um, you know there, there's not going to be much chance of actually getting through all of these uh, amendments and considering them. Uh, they even acknowledge that to do so, uh, is going to be um, uh, hopeful. So it's it's interesting the wording that they're very much using in there. And then we've got um, so with the the, the ones that, that shortens the time frame, the Article Fifty Nine IHRs, the shortening of the timeframes, those have to be rejected um, by all state members member states by the twenty seventh of November, twenty twenty three. Uh, and not far away. Not far it's away. It's really not far away. We've got a, an election in between then. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had um, feedback from um, an OIA uh, that I've seen that suggests that this is with Cabinet, and Cabinet are going to provide a report on these amendments by the 16th of October. So I think we've got a month and a half um, to consider right. those. We've seen in Australia um, the uh, the joint uh, committee over there on treaties has already said, no, this, these are minor changes. We're going to send them through. Of course, we've gone back to that committee and said, uh, you should really be looking at all of these other amendments because 
um, these there's 307 coming and I don't know how you're going to get through them in 10 months if you agree to these current ones. And then we've got the 307 um, IHRs and the pandemic treaty, which under the manifesto we're going to see um, uh, likely adopted by the World Health Assembly at the end of May 2024. And then we'll have about probably 10 months to review, consider those uh, and reject. But they're so well advanced now. I think there's been six or seven meetings. Uh, there's no surprises. They're not following the review committee's suggestions or concerns that are being raised. Uh, and, you know, the documents are very, very, very well advanced. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, so there's encourage- a trajectory that they're on and um, they're probably looking to stay on that trajectory and the train yeah. is heading out the station. Yeah, big time. Uh, and and the, the, there's no breaks. Uh, but there is breaks if we inform people and we talk about these things and we insist that it becomes a point that's being raised as an election issue. Uh, so I encourage everybody to ask their members um, of parliament what their position is on these things. Uh, none of this information is in a vacuum, that which I've found all the way through. Like it's so much, it's so hard to find. So underneath this um, replay, uh, I'll ensure that the um, link to the full page of the website that I've prepared on all of this information is available uh, to all the listeners. And you know, it's not, you know, there's no submissions in there. It's this is an issue, uh, and this is why it's an issue. And you can go and look at the document for yourself, or the documents clipped out or stuck in the web page. So, you know, come to your own um, uh, view on these things. Uh, certainly not here to tell you we've got enough people telling you what you need to think. Mm-hmm. Just go and have a look. Hopefully it's in a really friendly, uh, user-friendly way so you can actually share it with people because I know a lot of people are really interested about vaccine passes, but, you know, there's a lot more to be uh, concerned about in these documents. All right, Katie, excellent. Good work. So thanks for coming on the Legal Hub again. Thanks so week. much for having me. And uh, that was really interesting. We'll do it all again in a week's time. See you then. Thanks so much, Paul. Good morning, everyone. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.